you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 John chapter 4. This is the epistles of John. 1 John 4. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, uh, and if you haven't, I'll, I'll catch you up on what we've been talking about. This is the final Sunday of a three-week series we're doing on love. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the directive that Paul gives to the Corinthian church on how to love one another in the church. He's not concerned in that passage for how we love people outside the church, but how do we love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ? And then last week, we talked about how to love our enemies from Matthew chapter 5. How do we get the strength to love people that hate us or that persecute us? And we've, what we've seen in each step is that we don't have it within ourselves. We can't willpower ourselves to do this correctly. We must abide in Christ, and he gives us the ability to love people in this way. And so this morning, we're looking at 1 John chapter 4, and it's speaking of that abiding in God's love. What motivates us? What propels us to be able to do that? And how do we know if God's love abides in us? What are, the, what are the symptoms that we might see in ourselves that God's love does abide in us? Well, that's what I want us to talk about this morning. Let me read for us. I'm going to read verses 7 through 21, but verses 13 through 21 is what we'll focus on. Beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, so that we have come to know and to believe the love of, that, that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not, for he who does not love his brother, whom he, has, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time this morning we have to study your word. We ask that you would teach us what it means for love to abide in us. And Lord, that we would be impacted afresh this morning of the love that you have for us through Christ Jesus. And that would be evident in the way we live our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brian Chapel in his book, Each for the Other, tells a story. It's, it's a book on marriage. I highly recommend it to you, but he begins in his introduction. He tells a story that really illustrates the sacrificial love that Christ has for us. In his hometown, there's a river that runs through it, and on the banks of this river is a place that kids love to go and play. 
The river is a source of commerce for this town, and so often they dredges have to come through and clean up the river, pull out all the sand and the silt that begins to accumulate, and so they take it out and they dump it onto the river's onto the river bank, and it makes these basically what looks like a sand dune. You can imagine a young kid, 10 or 11 years old, would love to run up and play on these sand dunes. It's very fun for a child, but it's also extremely dangerous because the way they put the sand onto the river's edge, there's it's at parts of these dunes, there's a thin crust, and just under that crust is a cavern where sand has not filled it. So if you were to step on that, you would fall in and sand would quickly fall over you. And unfortunately, that's what happened on this particular day. There were these two brothers. They were out playing. They asked their parents if they could just run off and go play somewhere. They said yes. And the two brothers playing on one of these sand dunes fall into one of these caverns. Parents and friends couldn't find the, the boys for quite some time, so they developed a search party to go and look for them. And they found the younger brother. He was up to his neck in sand. He had, he had gone unconscious because of the weight of the sand pushing in on him, and they started to frantically dig him out. And they got him up to his waist, and he finally came back to consciousness. And so, where's your older brother? Where is he? Tears began to fill his eyes as he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. His older brother had died from trying to save his younger brother. He had put him up on his shoulders so that he might be able to breathe oxygen and live, which he did. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother had lifted the younger to safety. We too have an older brother who has lifted, up, lifted us up upon his shoulders, given us his righteousness because our righteousness is not good enough. Our older brother, of course, is Jesus Christ. It's this love that John, the Apostle John says ought to propel us. It, it, it can't just leave us unaffected. It's got to be evident. If this has really overwhelmed us, if it's really come into our lives and changed us, that ought to be obvious to the people that are around us. This love of God that he's had for us in Christ Jesus, John said, should abide in us. Well, what does that mean? We, all of us, I would think, we want God's love to abide in us. Well, what should that look like? What are the symptoms we ought to have if this is true? Here's my proposition. Because God loves us, we must respond to that love with our worship, our devotion, and how we love one another. How does God love, God's love abide in us? Isn't this something we ought to know as Christians? Well, I believe the Apostle John answers this in three ways. We know that God's love abides in us by our confession. We know that it abides in us by our confidence in him. And we know that God's love abides in us by our care for other people. So number one, our confession. We can be confident that God's love abides in us by the confession, what we profess to believe. But what prompts us to make this confession? Well, it's the love of God that's been shown to us. John says in the, in the, in the, uh, the section of Scripture that I read at first that God is love. That's a state of being verb there. It's not an action verb, although God certainly shows us that he's loving by the things that he does, but it's who he is. He is love. <coughs> in other words, his love for us is not conditioned on anything that's in us. Agape, he's, his love is unconditional. We love one another because of conditions. We think that they deserve it, so we love them. We think that they've earned it in some way, so we love them. We have some positive feelings towards someone, so we love them. God's not this way. God didn't love us as a result of us first loving him. It wasn't like he met us halfway. We were rebels, we were sinners, 
We wanted nothing to do with him. We hated him. We were spitting on him. We were insulting him just as those did while he was on the cross. That's when he loved us. That's the love that we're responding to, says John. We understand God's love for us primarily through how he loved us through Christ. So how do we see this? John begins in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The New Testament makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit must dwell in us for, under, for us to understand who God is and to believe in him. We see this in John chapter 3 with Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus. The doctrine of regeneration. We need a new heart. And the only way we get that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. We see this in, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He desires that the people there would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see it as Jesus teaches in John chapter 16. He says, it's for your advantage that I leave and go to heaven. It's good that I would leave, says Jesus, because when I do, I'm sending the helper to you. You need the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do for us? Have you ever been convicted of a sin that you have? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Have you ever been reading Scripture and something seemed to jump off the page that you'd never seen it before? A truth began to resonate in your heart and mind? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's convicting you. He's illuminating your heart and mind to the truth of His Word. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit that we read in Galatians chapter 5. It's the symptoms that I was talking about. If you're sick, you're going to have symptoms. You might run a fever. Okay, The fever uh, is, is not the problem. The fever is telling your body that you have a problem. You have a bacteria or you have a virus of some kind. You have symptoms of sickness. So if we're going to say God's love abides in us, well, how do we know? Well, that's what John's trying to answer for us here. And we don't boast in this. After all, the, the goodness, the confession... The love we have for others is something that was produced in us, not something that we just knew to do. John goes on in verses 14 and 15. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. There is a confession that we must make. There are words that we must use. It's not that, that just we need to have data in our brains and that somehow saves us. But there is something we need to confess about who Jesus is. The confession that, that John uses here, it's very simple. Jesus is God, the Son of God, in fact, and he's the Savior of sinners. Well, that seems easy enough, doesn't it? That's just, just two sentences there. But unpack that for a minute, all that that means. We're saying that Jesus, who was a man, is God, okay? He's divine. He, he put on flesh, okay? We could talk about that for hours but that he's also equal with God. Our Westminster Confession says that Jesus is equal with God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. It's not that there's God and he's really great and Jesus is kind of next in command. No, he's equal with God in power and glory. We're also saying that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, the only Savior of sinners. It's not that it's, it's a cafeteria-style religion and you can pick Jesus if you like and you have all these other options. He's the only one that you come to to be saved. We're saying that mankind needs a Savior. We're saying that we're sinful. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have to have someone else's righteousness appeal to someone else's works instead of our own. And many other things that we could say. We're saying that Jesus is he's authoritative. I must listen to his words. These aren't suggestions. They're commands that I must follow. It's very important 
what we profess. It's very important down to the very words that we use. That's why we take great care in the PCA. When we examine elders, pastors that want to come in our denomination, tell us what you believe about faith. Tell us what you believe about justification. And we listen very closely when we give those answers because it's important. Words matter and they mean something. They're attached to a belief that you have. It's why we take great care in teaching our kids the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We get these beautiful truths in their minds at an early age that, Lord willing, they will blossom and flower into more complex things in faith. What you believe affects your worship. What you believe affects the way that you live. When your life falls apart, when you're going through a difficult trial in life, you fall back on your theology. What you really believe is exposed when everything goes bad. When everything's going good, it's easy to believe whatever you want. But when it goes bad, you really reveal what you believe about God, what you believe about faith in the church. What we believe matters. We cannot believe unbiblical things and still claim that God's love abides in us. It doesn't mean that we won't, it doesn't mean we'll understand everything perfectly, but we must draw our beliefs from God and His Word. The number one is the confession. If God's love abides in us, we will confess the things of God's Word. Number two, we will also exemplify great confidence in Him. Verses 17 and 18. If God's love abides in us, we will be confident in the day of judgment. It's what we typically call in theology assurance of salvation. You will be certain of it. It's not that, well, it's likely that. No, you will be confident, completely sure of your salvation. God desires that we be confident in his promises. It's why he tells us in places such as Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm sure of this, says Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will see it to the day of completion. Was there any mention in there of what you have to do? He will see you through to the day of completion. Who doesn't want this kind of assurance? Don't you want to be able to say with the utmost certainty, I am in Christ, his love abides in me. I have nothing to worry about. We look forward to the day when Christ returns because for believers in Jesus Christ, this is the most wonderful day. For those who do not know Christ, it is a most horrible day. This is the kind of fear that the Apostle John is talking about. He's not talking about a fear that you have day to day, that you're afraid about a job interview or, or a difficult decision that you're having to make. Those things are important. He is specifically talking about the fear that we often have as Christians. Have I really done enough? Have I really lived the way that I'm supposed to? If, if God was to come today and to ask me, what am, I, what am I going to say to him? What am I going to appeal to that I'll, he ought to let me into heaven? Well, you're not going to appeal to anything that you've done or not done. You're going to say, I'm in Christ. And his record has been imputed, has been counted to me. I don't have anything that I can appeal to of my own. This is the kind of fear that the Apostle John is trying to take away from us. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this. Happy indeed are those who can say, God is love. We know and rely on the love God has for us, and to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. And the New Testament sets forth, here's the important, important line here. The New Testament sets forth this knowledge, not as the privilege of a favored few, but as a normal part of the ordinary Christian experience. 
You see, assurance of salvation is not something the really good Christians have. Like, oh, if we could all just be like the really good Christians. He's saying it's the ordinary part of the Christian experience. That for those of us who are in Christ, everyone should have the assurance of salvation. It's the confidence that we should all enjoy. Because we're not trusting in ourselves, we're trusting in Christ. You may say in response, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past, you don't know the terrible decision that I made some years ago, you don't know how I've hurt someone, how I've I've violated trust. This sounds great, but you don't know what I have done and the sins that I have committed and the dark places that I've been. Here was the situation. Down by three, one minute to go, the state Final Four basketball tournament. If we score, if we hit a three-pointer and score, we send it to overtime and the game continues. If we don't, game's over, and since I was a senior in high school, my whole basketball career's over. That's, there's some pressure. Our coach calls out the play. I was excited because it was a play for me. I was supposed to set a screen on our post player. He would then turn and set a screen for me. I would pop out into the corner on the basketball floor, receive the ball, ideally shoot the three-pointer, tie the game, and we go into overtime. As we ran the play, we quickly realized that the defense took the bait. It was executed perfectly. I pop out into the corner, receive the pass from the point guard. I could not possibly have been more open, completely wide open. Shoot the shot. It looks great coming out of my hand. Felt great. All the way to the goal. Off the back of the rim, into the hands of the defense. They go down, make their free throws, and we lose. Game over, season over, career over. You can tell I'm over this, right? I've completely (laughs) put this behind me that it doesn't haunt me every day of my life. It was 15 years ago. Maybe one day in my dreams I'll actually make it and, and then I'll wake up. Anyway, I was devastated. I, I had the opportunity that every little kid has, right? You play in the, you play in the driveway and you do the three-two-one and you make the buzzer sound and you make the shot and you get excited by yourself. You, you dream of hitting the base hit. and I had the chance to do it, but I missed. I felt like I had let everybody down. Tears coming down my face as the game was over. I go into the locker room. I'm apologizing to my teammates for not doing what they had entrusted me to do. The first person that I see when I come out of the locker room is my dad. My dad is a man of few words. (laughs) But I walked up to him, and he put his arm around me, and he said, Son, I love you. I told him some years ago that was one of the most meaningful things he's ever said to me in his life. Because in that moment, he didn't care. He knew I was upset. He knew I was frustrated and sad. But he wanted me to know in that moment, I don't care about that. I just want you to know that I love you. I don't know what it is that you have done, the people you've hurt, the trust that you've violated. I'm not talking about a silly basketball game. I'm talking about something that's legitimate, people you've really let down, people you've really hurt, forgiveness that you really need from somebody. I'm talking about something significant. What is it for you? If you're a child of God, you can be very certain that God had his arm around you and he looks at you and says, son, daughter, I know what you did. But I love you. I love you and I've forgiven you. Yes, there may be discipline as a result of your actions. There may be trials that you go through. But if you're in Christ, you are forgiven of what you've done. It's the wonderful hymn that we sing, His Be the Victor's Name, the line, What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. 
You know the sins that you've done. You know the the accusers in your ear. I can't believe you did that. Don't you remember when you did that some years ago? There's no way that you've been forgiven of that. You know those sins, and you know a thousand more that he doesn't accuse you of. But your God, your judge, he knoweth none of them because they've been forgiven in Christ. This should make us feel so much better. This should give us great encouragement because God desires that we would have assurance of our salvation because of Christ. Our eternal destiny is secure. It's done. It's taken care of. It's been satisfied. But it's likely that there are some here today that you're not so sure about that. Is, is, is this, this sounds too good to be true. Well, do you believe that you're a sinner and do you see that God is holy and just and he demands perfect obedience? Do you see that? And do you then realize that you can't be that. You see yourself as a sinner and you can't live up to the expectations. And maybe you've been told that it's about doing more and more and more and being better and better and better, but that just seems really exhausting. And maybe you desire this love and assurance that John speaks of, but you're just not sure how to get it and what to do. Well, John tells us, we first realize that we are sinners and we believe in Jesus as our Savior. We believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We believe that he offers his life as a substitute for ours. He doesn't say, bring your righteousness and we'll see if it it adds up. He says, your righteousness isn't going to cut it. So why don't you take my righteousness and you can count it as your own. You do not have to present your record to God because Christ offers his on your behalf. And upon this confession, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and God's love will begin to abide in you. It will begin. It's not that one instance you have none of it, and the rest instance it's 100%. It's something that progresses as you understand more and more. And as a result, you'll have nothing to fear. Be confident, not in your ability to grasp tightly to God, but in His ability to hold you near. Lastly, We know that God's love abides in us by our care for other people. When God's love begins to fill us and abide in us, it's going to be obvious to the people that are around us. And we've mentioned this point really the last two weeks as well, that how significant, how important it is in the New Testament for us to love one another, to love other people. It's a proving ground, really, if we've really understood what Christ does for us. If you say that you love God but you hate and disdain or even show apathy toward your friends, toward your neighbor, then you don't really love God, says John. It's a proving ground, as I said. You may believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You may profess Christ. You may have this great confidence. But if you don't love your neighbor, your profession is wrong. It's a lie, says John. This is a big deal. It's not saying that loving your brother or your neighbor saves you, but it's the fruit of those who are saved. It's the product. Charles Spurgeon tells a story on preaching on this very passage. He told a story of doing a funeral of a dear woman in his church. He says this, he said, I had the painful duty of attending to the Abney Park Cemetery to bury a beloved sister to the grave. I was pleased, although I can't tell you how pleased, on that dark and foggy and dreary day, to find nearly a hundred people that had come to her graveside, mostly poor. They'd gathered to show their respect for their friend who in many cases helped feed them and clothe them and in every instance had pointed them to Christ. 
There were thousands of tears that had been shed of the sincerest and most heavenly kind, and while conducting the service, I couldn't help but feeling great sympathy for her bereaved husband. Walking along the dreary miles that day, many had come, even giving up a day's work, just to be there to to declare their love and support for the family and to show their love for their dear sister. He said, I couldn't help but think, herein is love. And I said within myself, said Spurgeon, when love has learned its way into one bosom, it scatters its seed into the hearts of hundreds more. Love begets love. Let it once again, and no one can tell its end. Spurgeon is saying, and he is right, love is powerful. It is a powerful force in this world. It's a powerful force in this church and in this community. Once it goes out, once we realize, wow, Christ has done so much for me, I've got to now unconditionally love everybody that I come in contact with. Wow, those first Presbyterian folks, they really are loving. They take care of each other. They love the community. They love one another. I can tell you firsthand that I think this is a characteristic that we have here at First Pres. On behalf of Lauren and Nathan, my son and I, we have been very loved by you. It's hard to believe that we have been here at First Pres almost a year. It hasn't been quite a year yet. But we felt so loved and welcomed by you. Thank you. Thank you for how you have welcomed us into your group. Thank you for how you have made our transition smooth. Transitions can be very difficult, but we have felt the love of Christ from you. Thank you, heartfeltly. When love comes upon us, something has got to happen. You see, there's a progression in this passage that we see. You profess, you show confidence, and then therefore you love one another. It changes how we are. We don't just stay stagnant if God's love abides in us. You remember the story I told last week about Corey Ten Boom? If you weren't here, I told a story about Corey Ten Boom. She wrote the uh, book, The Hiding Place, where they hid Jews and those fleeing Nazi persecution. And as the story went on, she went, after she uh, survived Ravensbrück concentration camp, she traveled around the world speaking. One such story that I told last week was in 1947. She was speaking at a church in Munich. And she was done speaking on the forgiveness of the Lord and all that she had experienced and how we must, since Christ has forgiven us our sins, we must forgive other people. And she saw in a distance a man walking towards her, a man that she recognized as a guard at the Ravensbrook concentration camp where he were, a man that had, had beat her and tormented her. She saw him approaching. He would walk up to her. I, I was also at Ravensbrook concentration camp, and I did horrible things, but in the time since then, I've become a Christian. I believe that the Lord has forgiven me. He has cast all my sins into the sea. He remembers them no more. But I want to ask you for your forgiveness. So this guard asked Corey Ten Boom for forgiveness for what he had done. She said that she stood there for what was really just a few seconds but felt like hours. And she felt a coldness come over her heart. I can't forgive him. I cannot forgive this man for what he has done to me. My sister died while she was there. I can't do this. But she prayed silently to herself, Lord, help. And she, she would say later that a warmth came over her heart. And finally she extended her hand and shook this man hand, man's hand and said, Brother, I forgive you with all my heart. I mention this story again because you see the progression of this passage and what Corey Tinboom had to do on this day. She confessed to the people that she was speaking to that she understood the love of God, she understood his forgiveness. But then she also confessed and she showed her confidence. Since I'm forgiven, all my sins have been washed away. I know I will spend eternity with my Savior. 
But then the rubber met the road, didn't it? She had to actually prove that she really believed that when she had to extend forgiveness to the man that was truly an enemy. I can't see her heart, but I also can say with great certainty that there's no way, unless you understood stand the forgiveness you have in Christ, that you could extend the forgiveness. You could extend forgiveness to someone like that. We have a tendency to say in our heart, I get that, but you don't know what someone has done to me. Pastor, you don't know the depths of a hurt. Someone has violated me. They have violated my trust. They have hurt me deeply. I can't forgive in the same way. No, I don't know what someone's done to you. I don't know, and I don't know, I don't know how it's deeply affected you. But I do know what someone has done for you. I don't know what someone's done to you, but I know what someone has done for you on the cross. Christ went there loving you, showing you how you could forgive. And he tells us to love one another. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. But we pray that we would forgive and love others because of what's been done for us. What about us here today? We've been in the church for a long, long time. We've literally heard thousands of sermons on grace and forgiveness and mercy. And it just, this is just another one that just kind of washes over us again. I know that and I understand that. That sounds great. Does it still grip you? This still challenge you that Christ literally died for you. He died in your place, or he, he offers to if you don't know him, that you, you can experience that grace and mercy and forgiveness right this very minute if you would put your faith in him. Do you believe it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is that simple, but this is the love that you will see abiding within you. You will confess and profess who he is. You'll have confidence in your eternal security and then it will be played out in your life how you love one another. Pray that the Lord would give you these. Examine yourself today. Does God's love abide in me? Do I see these characteristics in my own heart? And if you do, praise Him. Praise the Holy Spirit who's taught you this, and praise Christ who modeled this love for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the love that you have given us in Christ. We did not deserve it, but you chose to give it to us anyway. And Lord, that this would never become information that we're just used to, <laughs> that you would convict us and overwhelm us again with your great love for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand please for the benediction? Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.